0: open the scriptures to Peter's first letter page 1293 in the pew bible first Peter chapter 1 what Peter writes here connects with what James writes in our text James writes about the testing of our faith and so does Peter And we'll see how they connect and shed light the one on the other. So let's read 1 Peter 1. We're just going to read the first 12 verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, that's the same word James uses, the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look." So far, the reading of God's Word. Let's sing together Psalm 4. This is a lament, so it starts off uh, with a lot of sadness, but notice that the lament turns into joy as we get into the third stanza, and that'll be we re- will see the connection to our text in James. Let's sing Psalm 4 stands as 1 2 and 3 I invite you to turn with me to the letter of James, chapter 1, where we we may continue our series of sermons in the Pew Bible, page 1288. James 1, last Sunday we dealt with verse 1. Today we will focus our attention on the verses 2, 3, and 4. They are the inspired... James writes, "'Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing.'" That's as far as we'll go today. In response to the preaching, we'll sing from Psalm 66, where the psalmist sings about the Lord testing His people as well, a theme here in our text. Holy and loved Church of Christ... We arrive this morning at the first of James's many commands in this letter. He's going to give us more than 50 of them in the five chapters, so they're just coming one after the other. And by all measures, this command is a doozy Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. The the words trials and joy are not normally in our thoughts at the same time, are they? We know what joy is. Joy is a happy feeling. When we think of joy, we think of a smile on our face. We think of laughter in our hearts. We feel up. We feel elated. We feel on top of the world. But who feels on top of the world? When the doctor tells you you have a serious disease or that you aren't able to have children or when you experience being bullied or when you didn't get paid for the job you did. Somebody defaults. Or when the church is told by the government that it cannot gather for in-person worship All of these and they're just a few examples are trials. A trial is a hardship. We call them hardships because they're hard, sometimes extremely hard to get through. Trials bring pain, they bring difficulty, heartbreak, uncertainty, tears, fears. How in the world, then, can we feel joy in the midst of trials, of hurt and sadness? And why would we do that? Why does the Holy Spirit of Christ, speaking through James, why does He command us to count it all joy when we meet trials? Isn't this like opposite world? Well, it is certainly opposite world to those without faith. But to those of us who have the eyes of faith, we may see that it is the most fitting thing in the world. There's something going on in our trials that when we understand it, when we perceive it, It does lift up our souls. It does bring joy to our hearts as we come to experience two big blessings that flood over our lives in the midst of trials. I bring you this word of the Lord under this theme, find joy in the blessings the Lord brings out of trials. Blessing number one, a steady trust over the long haul. And blessing number two, an undivided loyalty to the Lord. So we are to find joy in the blessings that the Lord brings out of trials. Well, when you read our text, one of the first things we should notice is how tender James is here, and actually all the way through the letter. Because he writes so many commands and they can come across in a staccato manner, it can, when you just read this through, maybe the first time or without doing a lot of deep thinking, it can come across like James is rather cool, rather aloof, command after command. Sounds a bit like a boss barking out orders at employees. That's the impression you might be left with. But. A closer look shows that's not at all the case. He says, count it all joy, my brothers. You won't hear a boss say that too quick. Maybe they should. My brothers. He puts himself on the same footing as all the members of the churches to whom he writes. He is a brother among brothers. He's a member of the family of God, same as anybody. Though he himself is is the blood brother of Jesus and a leader in the church in Jerusalem, he comes across in his letter with all humility, with all gentleness, my brothers. And he does this numerous times throughout the letter. This is an important point for all of us who are in positions of authority. Elders, deacons but also mothers and fathers and teachers. As we head back to to school, to the classroom this week, people in positions of authority absolutely have to give instruction at certain times and give commands even. But let's do that with a gentle heart, a spirit of humility a feeling of of unity with those under our charge, an understanding of their circumstances, and even an affection for those whom we are instructing or commanding. My brothers. You know, our children and our students are always at the same time our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to have that mindset when we're telling them certain things. The apostles speak the same way, the other apostles or the other and the letter writers of the New Testament, and the Lord Jesus led the way in this, this humble interaction, not only by understanding where His people are at, but remember the Lord Jesus actually came to us and He walked a mile in our shoes. Jesus came into our circumstances. He was a brother like no other. Well, James too, we should realize, has walked a mile in the shoes of the Christians to whom he's writing. Christians he describes as encountering many trials. Remember that he's speaking to the church as a whole. He's speaking to the the many congregations that are around. He calls them the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Peter uses the same address in his letter as we read. The church has been scattered among the nations... It's in a situation of spiritual exile. The church is thought of as outsiders in the world, and the church is even persecuted in certain places, especially by Jewish leaders, and James had experienced this. In fact, he was still experiencing this as he writes this letter. He was still living in Jerusalem. Church members had been arrested. Apostles had been arrested and beaten. James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, had been arrested and killed by King Herod, you'll recall, and Peter had been arrested with the same intention to be executed. And all of that had caused a lot of the believers in Jerusalem to flee the city. There had been a very physical dispersion out of Jerusalem on top of the spiritual dispersion. So we need to understand that James and and all the church in Jerusalem with him, they were currently themselves living through a considerable trial. The threat of arrest was hanging over them. The threat of beatings, the threat of execution was always over their head. And still he commands, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. It sounds very counterintuitive, but we have to understand carefully what he's saying. It might help to clarify what James is not saying. James is not saying that trials are joyful things in themselves. He's not saying that we Christians should be on the lookout for difficulties and hardship, that we should be eager to go through hard times. No, the verb he uses is more passive. He speaks literally of falling into trials. These are things that happen to us beyond our our control. We don't go looking for them. It's the same verb used by Jesus in the parable of the Good Samaritan to describe the, the traveler heading from Jerusalem to Jericho who, says the Lord, fell among thieves. That's the same verb. He, he fell among thieves. It, it's upon you before you know it. These trials, they, they, they fall upon us. So James is, is not saying that those things are joyful. The experience of the trial in itself is not a happy thing. Nobody enjoys being robbed, nor should they. Nobody is happy to receive a a diagnosis from the doctor about a certain disease or infertility. Nobody's happy to be bullied or cheated. Nobody's happy about not being able to gather for worship or outright persecution in a different setting. Nor should we be happy about those things. That's not what James is saying. These are all forms of suffering. They belong to the broken state of this world. They are part of the misery of our fallen condition. These things, and more like them, are to be lamented, as the Holy Spirit teaches us to do in the Psalms. Think of Psalm 4. We also sang a lament in Psalm 70. We sang this in Psalm 4 Oh, righteous God of my salvation, be merciful and hear my plea. And David goes on in that Psalm to seek deliverance from wicked men who are oppressing him. So David is being oppressed by, by certain evildoers, and he doesn't say to the Lord in any of his Psalms, let alone Psalm 4, Oh, this hardship, this, this oppression is excellent. It fills me with pleasure. Lord, let me have more of these hardships. No. The hardship is an evil. It's a bad thing. And, And David earnestly pleased the Lord to set him free from it, just like Paul the Apostle had pleaded to be set free from that thorn that was in his side, just like the Lord Jesus pleaded with his father to let this cup pass from him if that were possible. So Christ, through James, is not at all telling us to find happiness in the misery. No, the Lord Jesus Himself died to ultimately rid this world of all such evil and misery. So this this joy, it's got to come from another source, another place. Where? Where? Well, James gives us an indicator in the way he phrases the command, count it all joy. (coughs) You could translate, consider it all joy. James is saying, think carefully, think deeply about your trial, about what's really going on here, and then you'll come to find your joy. In other words, it's a matter of perspective. Like Paul says of Christ, and he uses the same verb in in Philippians 2, that Christ did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. Later in that same letter, Paul says, I count all things as loss, I regard them, I consider all things as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. In the same way James says, count it, consider it, think about it, regard it as all joy when trials, whatever the trial, when those trials befall you. We are commanded to have a shift of perspective. We are to have eyes that see through the trouble, and once we see, the joy comes to our hearts. And it's quite something that we are, are meant to see. James writes, Count it all joy. Not a little itty bit of joy. Not just a, a small slice of happiness. Not the, the occasional pleasant thought. No, he says all joy. It's an, it's an intensive expression. He, he emphasizes it in the original Greek. He does so by placing those two words first in the sentence. So literally he says, All joy count it, my brothers. Maybe to get the sense across, we might translate consider this, consider it pure joy. And again, I want to be clear that does not discount, it does not take away the other emotions as if we are here forbidden sadness or tears or feelings of hurt and frustration. That's not the point. The Psalms, inspired by the same spirit as James's, are filled with the, all kinds of those emotions. And later in James chapter 5, verse 4, he will describe with approval how the poor and the abused harvesters, how they have cried out to the Lord of hosts against the abuse at the hands of, of the rich people that they've been receiving. So lamenting and sadness and crying out when you are under oppression, that's okay. It's good. It's cathartic to cry out to the Lord God to unload your troubles to Him in prayer and song. He wants us to do that. Psalm 62, pour out your heart to the Lord. Do it in prayer, do it in song. But, now here's the thing James comes, comes to. Bubbling up through the lament, bubbling up through the tears, just as David does in Psalm 4, is to be an awareness, is to be a powerful understanding that there's something really, really good going on, even in the pain. that the Lord is using this hardship, as hard as it may be. He's using it to bless us. Well, what kind of blessing may we expect? What is so good as to bring us pure joy in the midst of all the trouble? Well, James provides the reason and the first blessing when he explains, verse 2, verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So there's, there's two things here. James tells us that whenever we encounter a hardship or a trial, our faith is being tested. We need to be aware of that. These trials and difficulties, they're not random events. And we also, of course, know that they are part of the providence of God, but there's more to it than just the, the, the providence of God. These are actually tests. And the second thing we need to know is that the testing of our faith results in something, something called steadfastness. Well, let's go back to the test. What does that mean that God tests us, tests our faith? Is God trying to figure out whether or not we we have faith? Like we might do in different situations. We might say before giving a, a bottle to a baby, uh, is, is it the right temperature? Is that milk at the right temperature? Let me test it first, right? And then you squeeze a little, draw a few drops on your wrist. And if it's too cold, you heat it up. If it's too hot, you, you cool it down. You want it just at the right temperature for baby. Or if you see in a different context, see an elect- have an electrical circuit, and you're not sure if it has the appropriate power on it for the use that you want to make of it, you first put a tester on it to see if it's got the right power on it, yes or no. Is there power there? Is it the right power? So is it like that? Does God run us through trials and tests to see if we've got what it takes? To see if we have faith. Is that what God is doing? And, and, and what if we fail the test? Does that mean we don't have faith? Well, thankfully, that is not the kind of testing that James is speaking about here, nor is it the kind of testing the Scriptures speak about anywhere. God doesn't need more information about us. He knows whether we have faith or not. He's the one who gave it to us in the first place. He's the one who who nurtures it. He knows full well the state of our trust and the quality of our faith. He knows all our weaknesses, all our warts and wrinkles, our dross and impurities. He doesn't have to go on a fact-finding mission. In fact, it's because God has all the information already that He puts us through a different kind of test. It's not a test to figure out, to to figure us out, but it's a test to filter us out. That's a different ballgame to filter out the things which drag down our faith. Peter writes more clearly about this kind of testing in words similar to that of James. Notice he mentions joy as well. It's, It's a purifying process that Peter speaks of. In this you rejoice. There's the joy. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Notice the grief. It doesn't cancel out grief. There's no cancel culture for grief. It's Christian to grieve. But there's still joy bubbling through. Peter writes a little further, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He relates and compares the the testing of our faith with the testing of gold in the fire. Well, we know about that kind of testing. When a goldsmith has in his possession a, a chunk of ore with gold in it, he's happy about that. He's got gold in his hands. He knows there's gold there. There's no doubt that there's gold there. Of course, the goldsmith wants the gold to be separated from all the rock and all the useless impurities that are around it. And how does the goldsmith do that? Well, he puts that chunk of ore into a, a specially made furnace, a furnace that is uh, like an oven that is designed to heat up to extreme temperatures, even over 1,000 degrees Celsius, And once it gets to that extreme temperature, all the unwanted bits of ore and rock and whatever else is in there, it melts away. And what is left in the crucible is pure gold. Well, brothers and sisters, that's what the Lord God is doing with you and me in our trials. And notice that James doesn't say, if trials come to you. He says, when trials come to you. Trials are coming. The Lord puts these things into our lives, all manner of trials, in order to do this, to purify our faith. And then we can start to see the reason for joy in our trials. Though this trial is painful, and we should not take an ounce away from that pain, and though it can be unbearably hot in God's oven, And though I long for the day when this trial will be over, yet I see it is God at work in my life at this moment. God is using this extreme heat, this hard and arduous thing in my life or in the life of the congregation. He's using it to melt away the dross, the impurities, the things that are holding back my faith, my faith from shining bright and from working properly so that my trust in the Lord is stronger and more pure. And isn't that reason for happiness, beloved? Maybe you've experienced this already in your life. Have you ever been through something so tough, so miserable and unpleasant, so hot, so to speak, in God's oven, But on the other side of that trial, you can look back and say, you know, I wouldn't have wished that on anybody. But boy, was it good for me. It forced me to lean on the Lord in a way that I had never done before. It brought me closer to my God in a way that I had not experienced before. That's good. That's what the Lord is doing to us in our trials, and that's the start of joy, pure joy. And that leads directly to what I've called here the blessing number one a steady trust over the long haul. Try to find words that unpack the meaning of steadfastness. James says this. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That word, steadfastness, is sometimes translated as endurance or perseverance. It has built into it the sense of staying power. That's why I use the expression, over the long haul. Now, we need to understand this carefully This idea of persevering, this this is not us persevering through difficulty in our own strength. This is not the Stoic saying, you know, regardless of what happens to me, I I will show no emotion. I will endure everything. You can throw anything at me. You're not going to rock me off my foundation. That's not what this is. This is not the Dutch or Northern European stiff upper lip mentality. The approach to life, that when life gets difficult, we we just knuckle down and we keep on keeping on. Each of these is a version of humanism, of finding strength in our own inner fortitude. But the truth is, our own inner fortitude isn't all that strong, is it? And in ourselves, we might as well admit that and be honest, we would come to the end of ourselves, the end of our rope, pretty quick if the Lord left us to ourselves. No, what James is speaking about is not being steadfast in being unmoved by the troubles, but rather being steadfast in the act of faith itself throughout the duration of the trial. Being steadfast in trusting the Lord from hour to hour, minute to minute. And from one trial to the next, this is not mind over matter, mentally rising above the heat of the fiery ordeal, but this is trust in the Savior and in in His provision lasting through the fiery ordeal. Doing it in the strength of the Lord, with the support of the Lord, experiencing the Lord's arms beneath you every step of the way. You see, brothers and sisters, faith is very much like a muscle, it needs to be exercised to become strong and stay healthy. If you never exercise your physical muscles, you know they will atrophy, they will deteriorate, they will become useless, right? If faith is not put to the test in God's oven, God's fire, it would grow weak and unsure, the Lord would feel very distant to us, So trials are opportunities to exercise our trust. And the more we exercise the muscle of our faith, the stronger that trust becomes. How does that work? Well, when hardship befalls us and hits us between the eyes out of the blue, we quickly come to realize that we don't have the resources to deal with this. We don't have the ability to endure or to last And so what do we do in faith? We go to our God in prayer. James will instruct us to do that in the very next verses. And in prayer, we plead with God for help, as the psalmists do. We call out to Him in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we ask our Father to bring the help we need, to bring the strength we require to fill our lives with grace so that we can get through the fire, to do that for the sake of Christ. We plead with our Father on the basis of all that Christ Jesus has done, asking our Father to assist, asking our Father to bring relief, that our Father would lift us up out of the pit, because in Christ we can plead with our Father, Lord, you know that we are your loved people because of Jesus. Remember us for Jesus' sake. We're exercising the muscle of faith, you see. And as we pray, and as we lean on God in trust, we move closer to our God spiritually, and we experience His loving hand upon us, guiding us, helping us. And that, brothers and sisters, is a rich blessing for every believer. In our trials, we can find that joy in the blessing of a growing faith, a faith that is becoming more pure, more refined, a trust in the Lord that stays steady, firm, for the long haul. And even that is by grace. And as that first blessing unfolds in our life, a second blessing starts to blossom as well, says our text. James unpacks that in verse 4. He says, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So you see that the chain of reasoning, testing of faith, produces steadfastness, and then that produces something. Over time, it has a full effect, and that, that, that's a, not a, a literally translated expression. We start to see in verse 4 that James is quite a skilled wordsmith. In the Greek, from sentence to sentence, or at least from paragraph to paragraph, James repeats certain key words, like links in a chain, and here in this single sentence, we have James using the word perfect twice. In English, it only appears once, but in, in Greek, it's twice. And let me translate this a bit more literally. He writes, and let steadfastness have its, here it comes, its perfect work. So the ESV says full effect, literally, its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete Lacking in nothing. James likes that word perfect. It comes up a whole bunch of times in this letter. We'll see that as we go along. So this is the second blessing, that you, believer under a trial, church under the cross, twelve tribes in the dispersion, that you may be perfect. What does that mean? Maybe it sounds obvious. Well, perfect. We know what that means. That means sinless. That means 100% without any fault. That's what we normally think it means in our regular use of the word. We, think of, we tend to think of moral perfection, never thinking or saying or doing anything against God's will. Is that what James means? If so, then we know that James is only talking about a future blessing, for no Christian can become sinless in this life. But when you look into the Old Testament background of this word and how it's used elsewhere in the New Testament, you find a different nuance, one that we're not used to in our time and place. It's the concept of completeness. It's the concept of wholeness. And when it's applied, this word, to a person's relationship with God, then it describes the concept of of an undivided loyalty, a wholehearted loyalty. Someone who is wholly or entirely focused on loving and serving God. The underlying Greek and Hebrew words carry that sense and maybe a, a single word like integrity, kind of gets at the, under, the, the nuance. Noah, for example. Noah is described in Genesis 6, verse 9 with this same word in the ESV. Noah was a righteous man, blameless. In the Greek, same word, teleos, perfect. The New King James uses the word perfect in Genesis 6, verse 9. Perfect in his generation. Was Noah sinless? No. Scripture is very clear about that, but... Was his heart wholly committed to God? Yes, it was. The Passover lamb is described with the same word. It had to be perfect. Well, we know animals don't have sin associated with them, but what is meant is the Passover lamb had to be without blemish in its body. It had to be whole, couldn't have a lame feature, couldn't have blemishes of any kind. And one of the more clear passages about the meaning of this word comes from Solomon in 1 Kings 8, in his prayer at the dedication of the temple. He says to the people, let your heart, therefore, be wholly true. That's the same word. Wholly true, perfect, to the Lord our God, walking in His statutes and keeping His commandments. So you have to understand that all through the Old Testament, It was possible, it was expected that the sincere children of God would be perfect in that sense. That is, they would be dedicated to serving the Lord with an undivided heart. Now, says the Spirit through James, that's what you get as a result of trials. Out of that steady Reliance, trust in God over the long haul of whatever ordeal, your heart is trained, my heart is trained, to become laser-focused on the Lord God as your only Savior, your only Lord, your only source of help. All other gods, all other trusts fall away. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are your only rock. All other ground is sinking sand. This is what you learn so clearly, what we learn so clearly through the trials. We learn to trust our God completely. We learn to love Him wholeheartedly. We drop our pride. We abandon our trust in things like money or doctors or governments or friends or even family. All of these are fine and have their place, but none are to be trusted in the place of God. None are to have the devotion of our heart, only the Lord. Brothers and sisters, you become perfect through trials. In this sense, you become singularly focused on the Lord. And as you love Him, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, just as the law requires and the Lord summarizes that, you learn to devote yourself to the Lord's service by loving your neighbor. That's how love for God is shown in in public. James is going to have a lot to say about love for neighbor in this letter. But already here, he sets the groundwork. He sets the stage for those future words. All the trials that you and I go through, they have a a grand, a beautiful, highly desirable result. Our trust grows stronger and stays steady for the long haul. And your dedication to the Lord, it becomes wholehearted we realize more fully who He is and all He has done for us in Jesus. All He continues to do for us moment by moment, we have a powerful clarity that without the Lord, we are nothing and life is meaningless. But with the Lord, we are precious. You are precious. You are loved. And life is filled with meaning and purpose. And there's a glorious future in store. For as your heart becomes perfect now in this life in the sense of undividedly loyal to the Lord, one day your heart and mine will become perfect in that other sense. Perfect in the sense of a sinless heart that loves God and obeys the Lord without fault, just like Christ. Trials purge us of our impurities so that we may become like Christ, like Him now in this life, more and more until the day arrives when we will be fully like the Lord Jesus, when no sin can possibly distort our singular love for and devotion to our Father in heaven. The pathway, brothers and sisters, to get us to that ultimate state of perfection, the pathway is the pathway of trials. That's not just James's teaching. That's everywhere in the in the Scripture. It's the pathway of trials. Trials are not strange for the people of God. When you endure trials, it means the Lord is busy with you. And if the Lord is busy with you, it's evidence that the Lord loves you. And if the Lord loves you, He's going to keep you through the trial. He's going to make you perfect. And in that reality, seen with faith, the eyes of faith, we can find a pure joy which nobody can take away. Amen.